Welcome to Crime Corner, where we examine all things crime, whether it be on the page, on the screen, on the street, or appropriate today, in the courtroom. I'm Matt Coyle, author of the Rick Cahill Crime Series, and I'll be your host for as long as it takes. My guest today, or tonight, Caitlin Rother has written or co-authored, I have to check with her on this, 14 books, and maybe more now, and several Kindle that's, e-books. That's, that's correct. It. It's 14? Okay. Well, you're, you're one, of the, yes. one of the few who's actually updated her... Um, <laughs> her, um, her bio on Amazon because I think I'm behind. As a anyway, let me finish up. As a Pulitzer-nominated investigative journalist, don't get those every week on the show. Rother worked nearly 20 years for daily newspapers, drawing from decades of watchdog reporting on topics ranging from addiction to suicide, mental illness, murder, and government, which seem to go together, and political corruption. She has written books full time since 2006. A popular speaker, she appears regularly on TV and radio as a true crime expert. Apropos. As a private narrative nonfiction writing coach, she helps aspiring and published authors to shape, write, research, and promote their books. She also works as a research consultant. She loves to go ocean swimming and sings and plays keyboards in the acoustic group Breaking the Code, which is a great name. Her latest book, <laughs> Death on Ocean Boulevard, Inside the Coronado Mansion Case, investigates the traumatic events that occurred in July of 2011 at the Spreckles Mansion that resulted in two tragic deaths. Welcome, Caitlin Rother. Thank you. You caught me as I was sipping the water. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Well, you got a lot of bio to go through, so, you know, it, it, it takes a while to get there. Um, so anybody that anybody who's lived in San Diego over the last 10 years knows this case. And probably, mm-hmm. and obviously, it's got a lot of national pub um, as mm-hmm. well. But so give us um, a little background synopsis on what happened in the Spreckles Mansion in July, as you reported it in your book, in July of 2011. Okay, so the the reason that this case got into the news is because Rebecca Zahau is a 32-year-old girlfriend of a wealthy pharmaceutical magnate, Jonah Shacknai, who uh, lived in the house in Coronado called the Spreckles Mansion. And it, this is a historic landmark here in San Diego County. It was built in 1908 by John D. Spreckles of the Sugar Fortune. He was the richest man in San Diego County, and his family was the richest family in California back then. So he he bought up all this land on Coronado, which is an island connected by a piece of land here um, to the mainland of San Diego. And basically, he also helped build the Hotel Del Coronado, which many people have heard of. So it's a... Beautiful little, you know, resort island. And Rebecca was found um, by Jonah's brother, who was there um, visiting, which I'll get to in a second. He found her hanging outside from a second floor balcony. She was naked, bound, and gagged. And that means her hands were tied behind her back, her feet were bound together, and she had a rope around her neck and then a T-shirt that was wrapped around her neck and her mouth like a gag. So that was why it hit the news. But there's more to the story, and that is Mm. that less than 48 hours before that, a little boy who was Jonah's six-year-old, who Rebecca had been watching while Jonah was at the gym, had this tragic fall from an interior balcony. Um, And Rebecca said she was in the bathroom she heard a crash, and the dog was barking. This is her 14-month-old Weimaraner. 
she came out and she saw him on the floor and this uh, glass chandelier had fallen from the second floor ceiling. It was lying next to him, pieces of glass everywhere. There was a soccer ball and a razor scooter. That's the scene. Adam Shackney, who is Jonah's brother, came out from Memphis uh, the day before um, because the little boy was in the ICU and had severe brain injuries from the fall. Nobody knows how the little boy fell. Um, But Adam called 911 and said, I got a girl hung herself in the guest house. So that's basically how the book opens, and that's what was in the news at the time. But we didn't know what he said on the 911 call. We didn't have any real background because the sheriff's department was keeping a lot of information uh, secret, private, whatever you want to call it. Um, They said for privacy reasons, um, because the Zahav family had already been traumatized by losing their daughter. So the, the sheriff's department ruled Rebecca's death, this is like two months later, uh, Rebecca's death a suicide, and Max's death a tragic accident. Does the house to this day uh, say it was, she was murdered? So that's right. kind of the short version. And you said uh, that, that things we didn't know. I mean, there's so much that I, I followed this case. I'm a true crime junkie. Um, I don't get to read. <laughs> I, think, I think I've read all your books, but I don't get to read. Oh, nice. It, true crime as often as I like, because there's a lot of other responsibilities sometimes for reading. <laughs> right. Um, but, and I, but I watch it on, I watch Dateline 48 hours and, and 2020 uh-huh. all the time, but there's uh-huh. so much. At, and, and so I was pretty tuned into this um, event, although it, I can't believe that it's 10 years ago. That to me is so strange. And I think that's because so many things about it have happened in between, but Right. There are so many things in this book that I had no idea. I mean, this book has so much great information, compelling information. Thank you. It, yeah, Thank I mean, you. and then I can't, we can get into it later, but I just cannot imagine the amount of research you did. But, um, <laughs> but there's also I a can. Personal, <laughs> yeah, I, I, <laughs> there's also it kind of a sad personal connection in some ways that you have with, with Rebecca's death. I, I don't know if you want right. to, you know, touch on that. Yeah, sure. Um, so I want to kind of preface this. It's 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 fine for me to talk about now. It's been 20, 22 years. But my husband in 1999 hung himself in a motel room in Mexico. And it was about three or four days after I basically told him our relationship was over. And this is because he was a recovering alcoholic, and I told him um, after our roller coaster marriage, which involved uh, two 911 calls, <laughs> a trip to the psychiatric hospital, he picked up a bat and threatened me with it when I tried to get get him to go back to a treatment program. It was pretty. It was a pretty rough um, relationship, a pretty rough marriage, and he was just a very sick guy. He was also diagnosed with borderline personality disorder while we were in marriage counseling. (laughs) And Mm. the counselor didn't want to tell him. She told me and told me not to tell him, which was just really awkward. And I don't even think that was ethical. Right. But so anyway, I had this whole experience of living with somebody who ultimately committed suicide. And I know how he was acting. I know how, what his behavior was like. He had threatened um, to do it before while we were 
together, and I've subsequently found out that he had done that even – I was his third wife. He had been mm-hmm. threatening to commit suicide since his first wife. <laughs> so this is something – this is like a pattern of behavior. And so I had that experience. Plus, I mean, I also <clears> – <throat> You mentioned the Pulitzer nomination. That was for a story that I wrote about a teenager here in um, San Diego County who killed himself by lighting himself on fire um, mm. right after his high school graduation. And his family had no idea that he was depressed or that anything was wrong. And, you know, I'm still in touch with his family today. Um, wow. It was a very touching and moving story. And, and I wrote another story about a guy who um, basically killed himself by mummifying himself in a condo. Yeah. He put yeah. foil on the windows and sat in bed and stopped eating and drinking and basically turned into a, you know, a mummy skeleton. He dried himself out, essentially. 18 months later, he was found. So these are the kinds of things I used to write for the paper. Um, and since then, I've written a number of books about murder and suicide, both, and, and in both cases, um, staged murders and staged suicides. So basically I bring a lot of personal and professional knowledge, which I used as a lens to examine this case. And that's what makes this book really different from many of my other books because, um, you know, I normally tell everybody else the story, but I I wove part of my story into this book because it, it was relevant, you know, so... Yeah, and it was it was uh, woven in um, effectively. Not um, thank you. It, it certainly wasn't about you. It was interesting um, right. information you had to convey. You know, you just said something about the kid who um, who committed set himself on fire. I think it was a Walmart. Uh-huh. And you said his parents had no idea. And I think that's that whether whatever uh, happened to Rebecca. Mm-hmm. There was a lot about her personality that a lot of people didn't know. Her family didn't know, and um, exactly. like other right. loved ones. There was a lot of facets, a lot of things going on. And just right. from my um, surface um, knowledge of the case, there was a. I think she was a troubled person in many ways, and that was something that you know you, you didn't really get from the press over the past exactly. 10 years. Exactly, because the thing that was challenged, one of the things that was challenging about this case is, you know, I don't want to re-traumatize her family either. You know, I, right. I didn't want to upset them, but I can't imagine that my book would not be upsetting to them because they have, have you know, been, you, you know, using a narrative of she was happy. She was strong. She never said that she felt depressed. She never talked about suicide. She had no, you know, drug or alcohol problems. She had no, um, she seemed fine, you know, and, and she was upset when Max fell because she was the only adult in the house at the time. And obviously she loved that little boy like he was hers, but she never said to them that she felt like it was her fault. She never, you know, mentioned that anyone else blamed her other than she did say to her sister who was visiting her 13-year-old sister, Dina is going to kill me. Um, and that is Max's mother who she did not get along with. So, I mean, my goal, one of my goals in writing this book was I wanted to really make Rebecca into a three-dimensional person. And it's not, you know, this, this is what she showed her family. And I'm sure that's how they saw her. I'm not saying they're not telling the truth. I'm saying that was what she showed them. She showed a different side to her 
to Jonah, and she showed yet another different side to her to Michael Berger, who's a former, another former boyfriend that she was seeing while she was married. She showed yet another side of herself, I think, to her husband. You know, she separated from repeatedly because yeah. he wasn't making her happy. And so I just thought, you know, there was a lot of backstory. And, and during the civil trial, the House filed a, a civil lawsuit against Adam Shacknai for wrongful death. And initially, it also named uh, Dina Shacknai, who was uh, Max's mother, and, and Dina's sister, Nina. They both blamed Rebecca for Max's fall. And, in fact, you know, Dina made such a um, fuss about blaming her and making, you know, saying all this stuff about, you know, about Rebecca that they act, that the hospital actually reported Max's uh, injuries to CPS that same week so there was a lot going on and i i wanted i wanted everybody to know you know in the in the trial adam's defense team painted rebecca as this you know very impulsive unstable you know she slept around you know she cheated on her husband and and they kind of just left it at that because they wanted to make her seem like somebody who would commit suicide because that was their defense and so i I didn't feel like that was fair either. So I was kind of yeah. I was trying to be sensitive to the family, but also really show who, who Rebecca was and all the different faces that she showed people and the conflicting stories that she told people about herself and, and her life. Yeah. The conflicting, the conflicting stories that, that leads me to the next question I want to ask. And after reading uh, death on ocean Boulevard, Max's death to me is as confusing as Rebecca's. Um, mm-hmm. And her account of what happened didn't add up to when looking at Max's injuries. Right. That, like, such as him being able to speak as he lie injured. Um, were there other troubling things about Max's accident? Start with what, what you mentioned about him speaking. So, Rebecca, um, she went with her sister. Um, when they were cleaning up the pieces of glass that fell from the chandelier. And the, her little sister, uh, she's 13 years old, she cut herself with a piece of glass. And so Rebecca, that same morning that Max was injured, her sister also gets injured. And so she had to take her to urgent care. And while she was there, she talked to this doctor who was treating her sister and, and kind of described, you know, what was going on. She didn't seem depressed. She didn't seem suicidal. And I, I don't think she... Um, I'm trying to remember if this is the right person that she mentioned this to. I think she mentioned um, that she heard Max say Ocean, which was the dog's mm-hmm. name. But but she um, – and then she said to somebody else that um, he said something unintelligible. However, the doctors and subsequently experts who Dina Shacknai hired because Dina was convinced that Max was murdered – I'm sorry. Well, he was a victim of homicide, meaning not that necessarily that somebody did it maliciously, but that it wasn't at his own hand. So I don't mean murdered. I, well, it, yeah. murdered is still sort of the same thing, but homicide. You know, and she blamed sense. Rebecca. She blamed Rebecca that you know that they didn't know everything that had really happened, and then so Rebecca felt guilty and killed herself, which is also what the sheriff said. But they said that Max's fall was an accident. Um, the doctor. Max's doctor said that um, Max's injuries did not match the story that he was being told either, that it looked almost more like a drowning and said, you know, yeah. I'm, what, maybe he was suffocated. <laughs> so, yeah, so the, the injuries, 
um, even the, his own doctors didn't think that they matched. But see, Rebecca didn't, she said, I didn't see it. So nobody saw it. And if Rebecca is tell, was telling the truth that she didn't see it either, we still don't know. But so what the sheriff says is, well, there was obviously something going on with the Razor Scooter and the soccer ball and the dog, probably all, maybe even in combination. But they think that he um, could have been playing on the scooter could have been running or whatever, but somehow got enough momentum to get over this top railing, grab a hold of that chandelier and swing on it, and the chandelier broke because it's old. Um, the, the cord broke because the boy wasn't, you know, he wasn't a big kid, but any weight on an old thing like that, yeah. broke the cord. He came, swung sideways, I guess, and then ended up lying on the floor. So it's like a you know, it's a big open area where you have a dog leg staircase that goes up to a second floor landing. And then there's mm-hmm. also a railing that goes down the stairway. And so the sheriff said, no, he didn't actually go over the top of the railing. He went over the side. That's what they think. But nobody saw it. So that's all the, those, yeah. are, the, those are the theories on both sides. Uh, but I think there's and- less controversy about his death than hers, although the two deaths are interrelated because um, if she did commit suicide, the sheriffs say, well, she felt guilty about Max's injuries because the last, uh, the last person that we know talked to her, we have proof, um, was Jonah. Jonah left her a voicemail at 10 minutes to 1 in the morning, and he said that um, he told her what the doctor had said that night, which was that the best-case scenario um, – Max would would never walk or talk again. And he said, he told me, Jonah told me that he was crying on the voicemail and asked her to call back, and she never called back. Yeah, and, of course, it didn't even reach the best-case scenario because he died a couple days after she did. Right, he was pretty much, he was brain dead, and he wasn't, yeah, the swelling just didn't go down, I guess. And, And, you know, the fact of the matter was he was down for an estimated 25 to 30 minutes, and the reason they even thought that he had a chance was because Rebecca told Jonah that she had done some CPR on him. Oh, yeah. if, you listen to the, if you listen to the 911 tape, you can hear her calling out directions and instructions to her sister who's on the phone with the 911 operator. So I don't, you know, I'm not saying she didn't do it. She said she gave a few breaths to Max. That's what mm-hmm. Jonah said later. So it's unclear because when the, the paramedics came, uh, they said they didn't see her doing any CPR. And she was crying and wailing and yelling, and, oh, he's just a boy. He's just a little boy. You know, she was she was upset. Well, she they, the two of them really did seem to have a, a great relationship. She did seem to love Max, and he seemed to love her. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So under Rebecca, there's a lot of evidence. There's a lot of evidence on both sides in this. And right. Almost any of it taken on its own could point to either murder or the other one point to suicide. Here's the two things that I just I couldn't I couldn't come to I couldn't understand. Well, anyway, the thing to me, <laughs> okay. if she's if she's hanging for hours, why uh-huh. is the lividity the lividity which is where the blood pools was in her back, right. right? Okay, so that's the thing. I I don't I don't see how how I don't think the like who would you like when you're doing a civil case? There's 
the defense, yeah. and then what do you call the other lawyer? The, the plaintiff. The, pla- the, the plaintiff? plaintiff, yeah. The plaintiff. Uh-huh. It didn't yeah. seem like they drilled down hard enough on that. But then the other one is if she was murdered, how come there's only her toe and heel right. print on the balcony where there's been dust for in this right. dust? Right. Clearly been there for a long time. So it's like either one. It's like you can't – it's just – there's so many things yeah, like there, that. There are many, there are many points on both sides that I say, here's all the things that, you know, could be, could say suicide, but there are a number of things that are completely conflicting or there are holes or unanswered questions uh, on the other side for, for the murder, you know, both of them to me, I'm not convinced of either one, frankly, which is why I didn't take a position in the book and I, I can't take a position now and I don't really want to take a position now anyway, but I'm just saying I, I'm not persuaded either way. Because the fact right. of the matter is um, this is not a crime according to the authorities because they don't have enough forensic evidence to reach that threshold. So, yes, as you mentioned, um, there is no DNA or fingerprints um, yeah. from anybody at the scene other than Rebecca that they found, <laughs> okay, number yeah. one. Number two, um, Adam Shackney's DNA, uh, you would think, would have been on the knife that we know he used to cut her down. So, so basically what happened is he gets up in the morning, um, 6.15-ish, and yeah. he's feeling kind of fitful and restless, <laughs> and so he pleasures himself to say <laughs> porno on his phone, which he uses to the police. Um, and some people said, well, he's just making an excuse for why his DNA might be found at the scene, but it wasn't. So he takes a shower, comes outside, and he says he's going to go try to find Rebecca to see if she wants to get coffee, and that's when he saw her hanging there. So he doesn't know she's alive or not, um, and so he says she's hanging, you know, high enough that he needs to get a table, but first, and, and he doesn't remember what order he did this in, but you can hear him on the tape, okay? He He's panting and grunting. He's, he runs into the kitchen to get a knife, and then he pulls the table over um, because he needs to stand on it to reach the point where he cuts her down. And in court, the house attorney, Keith Greer, said he really didn't need that table because he, she really wasn't hanging that high, and he, he demonstrated on a mannequin, which was a whole other mm. oh, yeah. crazy scene. But because um, the mannequin was a sex doll created to look just like Rebecca and like looked remarkably like her. It was freaky. Anyway, um, so all of this is documented on the tape because you can hear him dragging the table. You can hear him grunting and cussing and panting. And are you alive? Why did you do this? To yourself? You know, and he's talking mm. to the dispatcher, he cuts her down, puts her down on the grass. Now, OK, so as you mentioned, She's in this awkward position when the police get there. Adam has already cut her down, okay, supposedly. Um, So she's lying on the grass, and her hands are bound behind her, and she's kind of lying in this contorted position where her knees are bent, her ankles are tied together, her hands are behind her back. And so she's not flat because you can't lie flat that way, right? And so the the dispatcher is saying, you know, start doing compressions, and and he starts at 27. 27, 28, 29, and he's been talking to her this whole time. So you're kind of going, okay, number one, she's not lying flat. How is he doing compressions? Number two, why is he starting at number 27 when he's been talking to the dispatcher this whole time? Um, But when the police got there, that was where she was lying. So 
the reason, you know, that she may have been, I, I'm not an expert in lividity, but what the what these opponents are saying, why they're differing with the suicide theory is, is as you say, if she were hanging, the lividity should be, the gravity should be in her feet, and you should see the pattern of blood in her feet. But it, you didn't. You saw her lying flat. Now, nobody really asked that question, but I've heard that from a number of experts, but they did not, yeah, you're right, they did not really talk about that during the trial, and I wish they would have because I'd like to know. <laughs> it could be, though, that over time, because she was left on that grass all day long, naked, in the sun, all day long. So it is possible, I imagine, that over time the lividity would would move. would be – well, I don't know if it would move. Well, pull, it would pull towards it would the lowest spread. point. Right. right. So she's flat on the ground, and it, that makes sense why it would be – horizontal like that as opposed to just in her feet but she was we don't know how long she was hanging there either they don't know because she had rigor rigor mortis had started to set it into her jaw when the paramedics got there which is why they didn't continue cpr so you know and then i feel what's the estimated time of death well we can't tell that because rigor mortis i guess comes and goes and so they couldn't really say but we know that the last time she talked to somebody was around 10 o'clock she talked to her sister on the phone, excuse me, and said, you know, sounded fine. She said she was going to call her parents in the morning and she had to get up early. She needed to go to bed. So, um, but then, and then Adam says he found her at, you know, 10 to 7 in the morning. So, oh, and then the voicemail, she didn't answer. That was at 10 to 1. And we know that Jonah called her. We don't know for sure who answered the voicemail, but it was deleted right by the time that the police looked at the phone and we've never heard that voicemail because it was deleted and then they couldn't retrieve it. They, they, the sheriff's department was not able to retrieve that from the provider. And that is something that has really upset the Zahal family because they said, well, we don't even have any proof what Jonah said on that yeah. voicemail because we've never heard it. So we, all we have is his word and the sheriff took his word and they never really even talked to us very much about Rebecca. We said she didn't commit suicide. And I heard these interview tapes, too. The family sisters, you know, both talked to the, inter to the uh, detectives, and they both said she wouldn't have done this. Even Jonah initially said she wouldn't have committed suicide. But within a few days, I mean, I have, I have the, um, the transcripts, and I also have some, some voice interviews of the, inter of the detectives talking to, for example, Rebecca's ex-husband. And that was four days after. And he, they've already pretty much cleared Adam as yeah. he was a person of interest. He's never even a suspect. So, I mean, the house are convinced that, you know, this is a flawed investigation. It right. was biased. And they gave, you know, special treatment to Jonah because he was rich and Cetera. It'd be hard to argue that it was it wasn't a flawed investigation, but I don't know if there's any motive involved. There are so many things like this, and we're getting short on time. But just one thing I want to comment <laughs> on is because people, people I know, don't know. There's a lot people, here. There's a lot. Oh here. my God! There's so much. I mean, there's there's just unbelievable amount of things. But for people that somehow aren't familiar with this case, and they're thinking, well, of course she was killed. Her hands, she was bound. Her hands were tied behind her back. There was a sheriff's deputy, a, a female sheriff's deputy about right. Rebecca's size, who did on TV. Right. I remember watching on the news, who showed right. how you could actually do these knots and by yourself and slip your hand in under the last knot, blah blah blah. And, but there's all these contention about the knot. So, 
I mean, it's, it's no, it is no open and shut thing. And to me, before I, you know, not being anywhere near as in tune to this as you, but, but following it all these years, I came in with one opinion of what happened, and now I'm sort of leaning the other way, but I still have no idea. <laughs> and right. and that's, not, I mean, you, that's not because there's not a wealth of information that you give. So let me Uh-oh. ask you this. I'm add a little bit you know, about what you but do you I lost you. You're thinking. I lost, oh, you, lost you. I didn't hear my what question. You said. Yeah. Oh, my! I thought I th- it was a poignant question, so I thought you were thinking. Um, do you think no, this well, is you, over, you like litigation and and uh, yeah. and potential more lawsuits or or reopening the case? Well, there there is a lawsuit pending right now. Does the House filed another lawsuit, and it's, this time it's against the sheriff's department, and so they're basically, you know, alleging that this is still a murder, that the investigation was flawed, they did a bunch of stuff that they shouldn't have. Um, But mostly right now they're just trying to get records because they're trying to prove, I guess, that the sheriff's department, um, you know, talked about about things that they didn't release and, and, you know, their rationale Mm. or whatever. Because because Keith Greer, as a house attorney, has basically said – you know, we initially thought that it was incompetence by the sheriff's department, but, you know, it's so obvious. And the jury said, and even the judge, the civil judge said that the sheriff's investigation raises as many questions as it answers. And it's fair and reasonable to ask who killed Rebecca Zahau. If a judge is even saying that after hearing the evidence in the civil trial, why is the sheriff's department so, um, you know, sticking to their, to their suicide finding? I mean, they won't, they they want the criminal case reopened, and um, I don't know what's going to happen, but I, I can tell you that from my experience, the records that they're asking for ha- are protected. I mean, I think that a judge would be setting precedent by allowing, you know, in this case anyway, but hey, maybe in this case, a judge will allow it. I don't know, but there's a hearing in uh, July, I guess, where the sheriff's department is going to ask to dismiss the Zahows or whatever from the case. We'll see what happens in July. Yeah. Because obviously maybe. the sheriff's department going to fight this, you know, um, they don't like releasing records. <laughs> no. Well, they, but they did pick and choose. They released the ones that made them look good in some instances. Um, so, I mean, like I said, there's so many things to go over. Let's get it. How did you, how this thing started, this thing was 10 years old, and you initially couldn't write about it because there was no crime, right? Right. I mean, okay, so basically there was a person of interest, so that was Adam Shack and I, and like I said, they pretty much cleared him. They pretty much cleared Jonah, and they said, well, he was at the hospital. We've got him on video surveillance tape at the hospital going in and out, right, you know, at 1230, um, we have another video of him in the adjoining Ronald McDonald house where parents can stay while their kids are in the ICU. Uh, although there was a, a card reader that wasn't working, so you can actually see him going into his room. And so I had a question about that. But they pretty much decided that Jonah was – his whereabouts were accounted for. Dina Shacknai, um, I guess Keith Greer, the attorney for the house, didn't – didn't get or didn't watch that same video surveillance video for years. And so that's a question some people have like, well, that, why is that? But he said, he, you know, he didn't see it. But once he saw the tape, he said she was, she was there and they saw her going in and out too. And there's a witness who says that um, 
he saw a woman at the front door of the mansion at about in between 10 and 10.30, and he was convinced it was Dina. So that caused a whole – I mean, that's partly why she was named in the lawsuit. But um, Nina, the sister, Her they are sister. fraternal twins. Yeah, the yeah. fraternal twins. Um, have different colored hair, so they're not identical. Um, she said it was her. She said I and, and her phone records showed that she tried to she t- she texted and tried to reach Rebecca because she wanted to talk about Max's fall. You know, she wanted to see for herself where, you know, look at the situation and you questioned Rebecca because she just felt like Rebecca wasn't answering questions. So, it, you know, it kind of went on and on for a long time where, you know. I can't remember your question now. <laughs> Where was I going? Oh, just how because because you generally will write only after there's been a verdict. I I, I believe in a oh, case. Thank so you. okay, yeah. So <laughs> I was like, where was I going? So yeah. So initially, <clears throat> nobody was a suspect. So they cleared everybody and they said it was a suicide. And so if there's right. not even a crime, I can't write a book because no publisher is gonna is gonna give me a book deal. I, you know, and then I heard there was a civil lawsuit filed in 2013, and I said, well, that's something. Now I need to see what comes out in court. And at the time, there were a lot of theories going around about Hitman. You know, Max was murdered. Rebecca was murdered. Was it the same Hitman? Was it two different Hitman? What was the motive? You know, or was or is Jonah the target, and they were trying to get at him, you know, you know, and hurt his hurt him. Because um, he actually even raised that possibility in his interviews with the detectives. So there were all these theories. Frankly, I thought to myself, I don't want to write about this book. I, I, <laughs> if there's a killer out there, he's going to come after me. And, and if there is no killer, I'll probably get sued because, you know, everybody involved in this case is, like, so litigious and shackles right. a lot of money. And so I tried money. not to write this book. But somebody brought me... I had sources. I actually got this from more than one source. I had sources who brought me the entire sheriff's investigative file. And I'm like, well, there's a lot of stuff in here that has never come out. This would be a great book. So I kind of went back and forth. <laughs> but um, I couldn't do anything, really, until there was a finding in court. And that happened in 2018. So that was, what, seven years later. And then it took yeah. a while to get a book deal because, again, there's no criminal case. And, and so in some publishers' minds, it's it wasn't resolved enough, even though there was a verdict. It was a civil verdict. But with my story, um, my, you know, my husband's suicide and my whole other perspective, my -hmm. publisher um, decided that they thought it was definitely worth a book. And I thought so too. So, you know, then I proceeded to do more research and found out a whole bunch of other stuff that wasn't in the sheriff's file and didn't come out in court. And so it took a long time, took nine years. Right, and most of this you're really doing on spec, right? I mean, because you Absolutely. took you, yeah. Yeah, right. So think about all the time that I Caitlin know. put in for this, yeah. and with potentially My no reward. No, it's just what I, I get. It's probably what you have to do. And but I, I've, like I said, I've read. I think I'm not sure if I missed one of your books, but to me, this has the most information of, of any of the books that I've read. Um, I mean, it's it's have you, incredible. Have you read Dead Reckoning? No, don't even talk to me about Dead Reckoning. I, the I'm one stuck. where they get tied to the anchor? Because I had oh, to cut yeah. like 200 pages out of that book. No, so there no, was a I, ton I'm of research st- I did on that one too. That one is Thanks. so – no, I'm, I'm not saying the other ones were, were, were missing anything. I'm just – no, Dead Reckoning to me is still – I cringe when I think about that. That, that heinous – That was heinous, three trials right. I went to, and oh, my God, that was so much research. So I'm just letting you know. Yeah. The other ones are oh. a lot of research too. 
Right. I'm crazy. Um, I just do a lot of research. Well, it shows. So, but you also write um, nonfiction, not as much as you write. Um, I mean, so you also write fiction, crime fiction, not as much as you write true crime. But so right. is there any crossover between the two in, in your writing process? Well, you know, I I wrote um, a crime novel before I ever wrote um, a nonfiction book. And so I just couldn't get it published because it's hard to get, I'm sure you know, it's hard to get your first novel published. And I, you know, I don't, I didn't know what I know now. Um, so I learned through covering all these cases and going to all these trials and reading all these investigative files and interviewing all these detectives and lawyers and sitting through death penalty trials and, you know, et cetera. I mean, now I know my stuff. And so I wrote my first uh, novel, Naked Addiction, which takes place in La Jolla and Pacific Beach, um, two beach communities here in San Diego. Um, and for those of you don't, who don't know, uh, Matt and I went to the same high school in La Jolla, but not at the same time. So that's, oh. that's kind of fun. Me a little um, longer, anyway. me a little further ago than you. <laughs> not much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but anyway, um, I, it took me 17 years to get that book published because I didn't know my material, I think, well enough. So it was character driven. But now I've just written a sequel and I know a lot more. So the writing was easier this time because I knew the material better. And I was able to write a draft in like two months over during COVID because wow. what else did I have to do except stare at the wall? Mm. Three months, maybe three months. So I'm still editing it. So I'm not done. I just mean yeah. first, you know, first whack at it. So you the mean, crossover is, is like it's still, you know, my books read like novels, but they're all true. Yeah. And so the, right. I have to do it. so much research in order to be authoritative but I, I still write them using fiction techniques. So the crossover is the fiction techniques. They're the same. So I would write these, you know, they still have a story arc. You still have suspense. You still have surprises and reveals and discoveries for the reader or they don't want to keep reading, right? So that's the crossover. You mentioned interviewing people um, for the nonfiction. And this is something that, particularly for this book, that, kind of astounded me is the, the, the people that were willing to talk to you knowing you're writing a book, how long does it take to gain somebody's in general to gain somebody's trust for them to be able to somebody, you know, I mean, everybody's got something to hide in, in, in life in general that we've all got something. We and don't this case in particular. <laughs> yeah. Right. right. <laughs> well, so how you, let's put it this way. I, I, the way that I was able to talk to Adam Shackney is, I went up to his girlfriend in the during the trial in the bathroom. And I gave her my card. Of course. You know? <laughs> so I come every day. But, but see, he and his – and I said, you know, when he – finally, he called me he, out of the blue. I was, like, not expecting his call. It was months later. And I was like, how did you get my number? He goes, well, you gave Mary, Mary your card. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Which was my intent, you know, that she would give it to right. him. But I also wanted to interview her, and I did. So – I interviewed him first, like three and a half hours. You know, these people, when I interviewed, I mean, this case was different because, like I said, he was found responsible, but only in civil court. So he is not, he doesn't have a criminal record. He has no mm-hmm. criminal charges. So I have to be really careful. And, and so I made it really clear to him, you know, I, I'm not taking sides in this book. I'm doing the objective journalist thing. He's, but he and his brother had this idea that I was on the Zahaus side because they saw me talking to the Zahaus during the trial. Uh, and to Keith Greer, but 
But the fact of the matter is his attorneys weren't talking to the media. His attorneys weren't talking to anyone. So the only reason I was talking to Keith Greer is because he was the only one talking, <laughs> you know, to anyone. Right. But it, so, so I tried to, I said to Adam, hey, you know, I want to interview your brother. He's, he, he won't talk to you. I'm like, well, can you at least pass on the message? Well, he was just not going to talk to you. I'm like, well, okay. And he wouldn't talk to any of the media either. The only, um, he did only one interview and it was very limited and conditional um, for 2020. And every other show that I watched, it said Jonah, you know, declined to comment. So I was kind of thinking he wasn't going to talk to me, but I still tried. I still tried to get Dina to talk to me. I tried to get Mina to talk to me. Um, I, I, asked to interview the sheriff's department and initially Sheriff Gore said no, but he finally came around and I met with him for a couple hours. I met with some detectives, but they wouldn't let me talk to the actual detectives who worked the case. They didn't want to talk to me. So, I mean, but I had all their reports and they put everything in the reports. So, I mean, it almost doesn't even matter after a certain point. As long as I have the whole file, it doesn't matter. I have all of these you know, I went into this room and I saw this and I picked up this and, and then the crime analysis and all that stuff. But what what happened was I I um I got a card from uh, Jonah's PR firm. There was a woman who sat through the trial. I gave her my card. I told her I'm writing, planning to write a book. So I still kept that card and I I called her because um, I did one more round. I said, look, I'm going to try one more time to reach everybody before I. And it took a while for Jonah to get the message, but he ultimately emailed me, and I had finished writing the stupid book <laughs> already, and I was in the editing phase, my, I mean, self-editing. So I had, you know, I still had like a month or two weeks, or I can't remember what it was. And I'm like, oh, my God. So we ended up talking eight times and, you know, like two hours each. So I ended up getting all this information from him, and I had to go back into the book and, and rewrite major portions mm. of it because – it was important to have his perspective in there. And I've um, mm. since gotten some feedback. Oh, Jonah must have paid you to write this book. I know you two wrote this book together because I have, you know, information from Jonah in the book because they wouldn't talk to me. I mean, excuse right. me, but your information would have been in here too if you had answered right. my emails and calls and letters. So, you know, I they think, can blame themselves, not me, for that. Yeah, I think, I think people that would see you on one side or the other are people that come in with a, with a point of view already in place. Because Absolutely, it's yeah. pretty much down the middle. But I have to say, thank God that you talked to Adam. A, a, uh, he gave the book a little added texture. I'll just say this about him, an odd fellow. <laughs> <laughs> Even his own brother will say he's an eccentric, <laughs> odd guy. Because, you know, Jonah said to me, you know, the – the only reason that this is in the news is because Rebecca was naked. I have, you know, I'm wealthy and, and Adam is odd, you know, essentially in yeah. so many words. So yeah, that's partly, that's partly true. So. All right. So um, I really appreciate you doing this. What's next for well, thank you? Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Um, what's next is I'm going to finish editing this crime novel and get that published. And so, then yeah. on the back burner, there's uh, the McStay case, which is that family of four oh, up in Fullerton with the little yeah. two, three, year, three and four-year-old little boys and their, his, their parents. They were um, just disappeared from their house in Fallbrook. And there was food left out on the counter, but no signs of foul play. Uh, three years later, after the sheriff's department, same sheriff's department, was investigating it as a missing persons case. Thought, oh, they went to Mexico. Three years later, the 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 four bodies were found in two shallow graves in the desert. 
And it yeah. turns out that they had holes in their skull from a hammer or like a sledgehammer. So pretty ugly, pretty ugly thing. Yeah. And um, one of the business partners was ultimately convicted and is now on death row, one of the father's business partners. But I think there's more to this case. Uh, it just seems like too neat that way. Uh, you know, it, this guy never had a criminal record. He was, what, 60-something, I think, when this happened. He had a relationship with this family, and, he, you know, he had Long no time. violence no violence in his past. He had, was a petty thief and had been to prison or jail before, but no violence. And so that always kind of made me go, hmm. And just the whole, the whole, just the whole thing, it seems like there's more to this. I'm not saying he didn't do it. I'm just saying I just don't think it's that simple. So I think that there's a lot there. But, you know, COVID, courthouses right. closed. Right. It took me months just to get a court order to go look at the exhibits, which I still haven't done because, I mean, I'm not even fully vaccinated until tomorrow, which is awesome. Oh. <laughs> so. Yes, that's on the back burner. But I have a bunch of other stuff going on, too, that I can't talk about. But we'll see what happens this year. Any upcoming TV appearances people should know about? Uh, well, I've, I'm going to be on 2020 at some point this summer talking about uh, the Nanette Packard, Eric Deposky murder of Bill McLaughlin, multimillionaire who invented the device that separates plasma from blood, excuse me, in Newport Beach. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, that, yeah. That's yeah. coming up. And I'm going to be, uh, I'll be in this Lifetime Beyond the Headlines segment that's going to run after a movie on June 13th, Sunday. That, um, yeah, that's coming up. So those are two national things, which will be fun. And um, I've, got, I've got a book signing. If anyone's listening here in San Diego, I've got a book signing on Sunday at Bay Books. Oh, fantastic. Speaking, speaking of Coronado, From 12 yeah. to 2. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not going to be speaking. I'm just signing books. But if anybody right. wants a signed book, I will be there. I have not oh, been yeah. in a new store yet. Oh, it's, um, yeah, it's a nice, it's a nice little space. I like it better than the old one, in fact. Cool. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so people can follow you and find out when you're going to be on TV and when things are coming up. How do they find you on the World Wide Web? CaitlinRother.com. Um, and if you are more interested in hearing, if you want to hear more about this case, I've been speaking about it, and I'm like blue in the face speaking about it. And there's a lot of Q and A's. There's a lot of virtual events that I've done with um, that are, you know, an hour long. Lots of people ask questions. So there's a lot of stuff and it's on my virtual tour calendar. I've got links to everything that I've done that's been recorded and interviews and all kinds of stuff. So that's on my blog, the virtual tour calendar on the blog. Well, you could talk, you could do an hour with, with each um, piece of evidence on this case and you you could do it for the next year and a half. It's amazing. Well, Thanks again for, for coming on. Always great to talk to you. And um, everybody in Thanks San Diego, down, you bet. Go down to Coronado, a great place. And you can actually drive by the Spreckles, I guess, the Spreckles Mansion, and you, when you buy Caitlin's book. There you go. All right. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you. Have a good night. That too. All right. Bye. Bye, everybody. Um, that's it for this week or this next couple weeks. This is a copyrighted trademark podcast solely owned by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Uh, Follow me on Facebook, and uh, we'll find out when the next one's going to be. Thanks.